We're going to continue our conversation through the book of Matthew today. I'm excited about this. Uh, We're going to spend some time in chapter 18. If you have a Bible, uh, that's where we're going to be, Matthew 18. We're going to read uh, basically half of it, the first half. Um, In this particular chapter, Jesus, uh, he targets really two subjects, two very important subjects. Uh, The second half, he spends talking about the very important, significant, yet controversial subject of forgiveness. And uh, in fact, we're going to talk about that next Sunday. And so he really goes into this, this thought of forgiveness. The first half, he spends all of about 13 verses answering one question. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question that he's asked by his own disciples, and that is, who is the greatest? Who's the goat? Who is the greatest in the eyes of God in the kingdom of heaven? And so uh, let's start in verse 1, chapter 18 of Matthew. This is what it says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself, and he set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted... And become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Um, the question has to kind of come up in our, in our hearts and minds. Where is this question coming from? What, what is this about? So his disciples are asking Jesus, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Um, now, last the, the previous chapter we talked about last week was this incredible moment where Jesus is transfigured on this mountain and encounters Elijah, Moses, and God himself. And he takes with him for this little hiking trip three disciples, three of them, leaving nine behind. And so he's got Peter, James, and John, and he takes them on this excursion, and they come back. They may not really talk about in detail what happened because they may not really even understand what happened. But uh, these other guys know they were chosen for a reason. I don't know about you ever picked last in dodgeball. It's not a great feeling. And so these guys are, are left out. They're, they're on the bench and not able to be a part of those things. And, and that, this is not the only time that happens. And so uh, you got to think that some of it might come from a place of where do we stand in this deal? And maybe a little bit of jealousy, maybe a little bit of feeling left out. Maybe it's coming from just this base level kind of thing that we all deal with, and that is that we're naturally competitive. We just are. We're naturally, we're always comparing, contrasting. We we have, uh, in our culture, we have this thought of hierarchies, in levels and in who ranks over who. And so that's kind of where our minds always are. We love promotions. Promotions are amazing. They make you feel good because someone is lifting you to the next stage, uh, to the next level. You, you, we love having authority over other people. We love being the boss of somebody. And so uh, we, we, we like those, those things because it's an acknowledgement that I am actually up here and I'm at a different level. And so naturally, I think there's some competitive, uh, there's something in us that's just very competitive that, that likes that. And, and, and also, I think there has to be in there some sincere 
some sincere question of what does God value? Because I want to lend myself. I don't want to waste my time doing things that God doesn't really care about. So what does God value in the eyes of God who is the greatest? Because I want to be that person. I don't want to be just great in the eyes of everybody else. I, I, maybe all those, those thoughts are true. I don't know. I wasn't there. But regardless of why they asked the question, Jesus answers the last thing that I mentioned. What God values. That's the answer that Jesus gives. He says, okay, I'm going to give you uh, my authoritative perspective of what God values and deems great. And so that's the answer that we get. And so Jesus' answer is completely unexpected. Could not be more out of left field. Could not be more random. And it, it could not catch these guys more off guard, I'm sure. He, he says... Everyone uh, that walks the planet, you're, you're pursuing uh, progress, individual accomplishments. And, uh, and, and so he's, he, he's in, in light of the natural order of things, pursuing progression, being progress. He's actually, uh, he states that uh, it, kind of this image of regression is what he's after. In a world of progress, he's promoting regression. He, he highlights a child. A kid is brought up as an object lesson. And, uh, and so that kid comes up, like, picking his nose and shuffling his feet. And Jesus is like, if you don't become like this kid, you're missing the mark. Culturally speaking, children were not, uh, were not heralded as, as valuable and as important as they are now. That we shut our lives down and say, okay, everything has to stop because I'm having a child and I'm changing my uh, habits, I'm changing my routines, I'm changing my schedule, I'm changing all of my life to raise this child. Back then, not so much. In fact, the child was encouraged, hurry up and grow up. And, uh, and they were not seen as like they're seen today. In fact, they were looked down upon Quite, quite a bit. And so uh, they would, uh, you would see through the ministry of Christ when he's welcoming children, they're coming, approaching him. The disciples would be like bouncers and say, no, 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 no. You guys can't go up there and get your, like your, your chocolate pudding hands all over the Savior and his perfectly white robe. If you've seen any Jesus movies, uh, y- you need to stay away. This is grownups. And, and, and Jesus would say, no, 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 let the children come. This is, this is who I came for. So Jesus is saying, not only do I want you to tolerate these kids, I want you to be them. I want you to be like them. So the role model is a child. Now, you, you got to question, what is it about children that Jesus is alluding to? Well, I mean, let's face facts. Children are simple. They're, they're not terribly complicated. It might feel complicated raising them, but ultimately, they're, they're pretty simple creatures. They're, they're not questioning everything that you say and trying to read into it. They're not like, I wonder if, I wonder if, when he said that, I wonder if he meant this. Children don't do that. They, they, they hear what you say, boom, believe you, trust you. Children are innocent. Now, they not, may not always act innocent. Speaking of children, uh, you good? Okay. <laughs> uh, 
they might not always act innocent, but they, they are quite innocent. And, uh, and there's, they, they have not lived enough life to become jaded and cynical and, 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 uh, and, and stained by our culture. They are helpless to a certain degree, especially when they show up. They, their whole life, their very survival depends on us. They are dependents. They're dependent upon us. We call them dependents. We list them as dependents. They are completely dependent on their parents. So uh, I'm going to add to this, but the very first question, the very first way that Jesus answers this question is with this idea uh, that the greatest among us, who is the greatest? The dependent. The dependent. And so those who are completely, utterly dependent on someone else, those are the greatest. Um, there is a, uh, there's a, a contrast in the, throughout the text, throughout the, the New Testament, between uh, receivers and achievers. Those who simply receive versus those who work hard to achieve, those who work hard to acquire those who uh, work hard to earn in merit. Um, Romans 6 states that the, the wages of sin, the, the, what you earn, is death. So the earning, what we deserve, what we earn is death. But, the contrast, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. So you, you have contrasted the wage versus the free Gift that is throughout the New Testament, and that's really the conversation: is what we deserve versus what God freely gives to us. Children don't deserve what we give them. Can can we be honest? They we give to them because we love them. It's not because they've earned it. It's not because they've secured it. It's not because they work for it. It's because we unconditionally love them. That we give them what we give them. And so God is a father. That's who he is. And so our gift from him is, is salvation, is life, is eternity. Jesus has a, a famous encounter with a, uh, a rich young ruler. And that's actually in the, in the next chapter uh, of Matthew. And, and the rich young ruler, if you know the story, uh, approached Jesus, said, How can I earn uh, eternal life? How can I earn it? What can I do for it? So we have a, a conversation of achieving. Jesus uh, kicks into the Ten Commandments. This is how you earn. And the, uh, the rich young ruler cuts him off and says, I, I, okay, I've done all that stuff since I was young. Check. Which is silly because he hasn't. But anyway, he's, he's delusional. And, and so Jesus tells him, well, then you've you got to go sell everything. One more thing. You, 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 if you're trying to achieve... There's always one more thing. There's always more that you could do. And so he walks away dejected, sad, heartbroken because he can't do that. It's too much. He found out that level where the price of admission is too high. I can't afford that. And so he walks away um, heartbroken and because he couldn't, he couldn't do that. So uh, Jesus... Is, is showing him the impossible, the, the impossible nature of earning his way to salvation and how complicated it is. 
And then uh, Jesus' disciples, uh, they, 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 they're sitting there, you know, like completely confused. Like, okay, if that guy who's tons of influence, wealth, uh, he says he's kept all the commands. If he can't make his way into the kingdom of heaven, do any of us have a shot? And so that's where Jesus says, okay, with, with people, it's impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. His statement is, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You can replace the word rich with independent, self-sufficient. One who is completely self-sufficient. That they don't get it because what he's after is the dependent. Let's move on to uh, verse 6. I've chopped these verses up a little odd. You'll notice uh, different than your Bible does, but uh, there's a reason behind that. So uh, we'll look at verse 6 through 9. It says this, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to this world because of its stumbling blocks. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be cast into the fiery hell. Let me go ahead and add to that the question uh, that Jesus is kind of building here. Uh, who, Who is it that is the greatest? His second answer to that question would be the dependent on him alone. Not just the dependent, but the dependent on him alone. Uh, Any counterfeit or any substitute for ultimate meaning or salvation is a stumbling block. That thing is a stumbling block. Uh, that, that thing, that person, whatever it is, anything that is a substitute for Christ alone is, in fact, a stumbling block. And so uh, regardless of our, our physical or emotional attachment to that thing, We must detach our souls from it for our own soul's sake. Jesus uses the imagery of cutting off limbs. He uses the imagery of plucking out your eye. If any of these things cause you to stumble, you need to get rid of it no matter how attached you are to it. I'm pretty attached to my hands. I'm pretty attached to my my feet, to my eyes. But he's saying it's better to get rid of that than to uh, be brought down by that. Now, do we know historically there was a lot of people who didn't have hands, or didn't have feet, or wore eye patches who were followers of Jesus? No. So there is some metaphorical sense to what he's saying here. And what he's saying is that nothing's worth your soul. 
What would man give in exchange for his soul? There is nothing worth it. Nothing. No matter how attached you are to it, no matter how meaningful it is, if it is a stumbling block, if it pulls you away from the central focus, the one thing, then it, it, it needs to be detached from. There's a lot of relationships that we've had, that, uh, and we've all had, that have been um, stumbling blocks for us. Now, some of us outgrow that, some of us don't. But either way, those things that, that pull our focus, that become our God, are like millstones around our neck. This personalizes it. This says, if any one is a stumbling block, any person is a stumbling block. So it's not just stuff. It's not just things. It's not just feelings. It can be people. There is severe consequence to pulling people away from what? From goodness or morality? No, no, no. The person of Jesus. Morality is a result of a connection. Not, it's not the result itself. It's not the end uh, itself. It is morality comes through a relationship of Christ. One is good, and we're all good because of him. So what this is talking about is pulling us away from the connection, the source, Jesus. Let the children come to me. This is, this is who we're all talking about, is Jesus. And so this conversation goes into, hey, I, I, I want you to make sure that the dependency that we have is on me alone. We're going to keep going. This is verses 10 through 14. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. So he's continuing the conversation. This is all the same answer or part of the same answer. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their, uh, that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who is in heaven. For the son of man has come to save that which is Lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than than uh, over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. He's, uh, this is, again, this is a familiar parable that we've heard, and, and, and he expounds upon it, we see in the book of Luke. Um, this is speaking to a lost sheep, and he says it matter-of-factly, don't shepherds leave 99 sheep on their own to go find the one? And I, I got to imagine the disciples were like, no, no one does that. That is not cost-effective. That is not good management. That's a horrible shepherd. But Jesus is, again, in the same way he's saying, uh, who's the greatest in the kingdom? The least. He's saying a good shepherd would leave the 99 to go after this one solitary lost sheep. What, what did the sheep encapsulate that is, um, that is important for us to understand? Lost. Vulnerable. At risk of perishing. He says uh, he, he wouldn't let any of these perish. He's saying the one by itself is a death sentence. Away from others by itself is, is perilous. So his third answer to the question. The urgently dependent on him alone. 
The dependent, yes. Dependent on him, yes. Urgently dependent on him. He is painting a picture of this question, the original question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven from God's point of view? The urgently dependent on Christ alone. That definition of greatness runs the opposite direction of this world and our culture's definition of greatness. When we're talking about goats, I'm going to go on record. Michael Jordan is the goat. There's no, there's no other conversations. End of conversation. Um, he excelled in, in an arena to a degree that was awe-inspiring. I mean, I'm, we're still buying his shoes. And he has not played in, in decades. We, we were, I was privileged enough to watch this guy play. Not in person, but, you know, on my TV. But to watch him growing up, I was like, this guy is superhuman. He is so good. Any Swifties in the house? Okay, okay, all right. I'm going to pray for you. And uh, Jesus help us. Uh, I'm kidding. She, uh, Taylor Swift, whether you're a fan of her music or not, it doesn't matter. She is so talented. A, a gift from God. Not she's a gift from God. What she has is a gift. To some people she is. To me, I don't care. But I would re-gift that gift. Anyway, so, uh, not a Swifty. I think she's a cult leader. But anyway, that's, that's just me. That's whatever. Whatever. Don't worry. Shake it off. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> I mean, a hater's going to hate, so don't worry about it. So, um, no, she, she, I can recognize that she has a supernatural gift from God. Now, however she uses that, it's up to her. And, and so, but the Bible says giftings and callings of God are irrevocable. He's not going to take it away just because she's not using it the way that he wants her to. Or maybe she is. I don't know. I don't care. It's between her and God. But uh, ultimately, I can recognize greatness. I've been around people who are excel in their in their field, and I am impressed by it. I think it's awesome. I think it's really good to be good at what you do, um, to to get better at what you do, excel at what you do, to to want to get better. It's it's beautiful. I would rush, I would much rather that that mentality than just coasting and in, in, in apathy and mediocrity. I, I would much rather some sort of drive to to grow and improve. I think that's a great, great thing. But that's, the difference is, I think that's great. That impresses me. The question was, what does God think is great? And what impresses him? And it's kind of the opposite. Which is probably why the Bible says that his ways are higher, his thoughts are higher, higher but it also says that Uh, that his ways and thoughts are foolishness to us. They don't make any sense. Because what he's after is not necessarily what we value. So people give their lives, even in Christian circles, within the realm of Christianity, they give their lives to going the same way as everybody else. 
they give themselves, they, they give themselves wholly towards checking the same exact boxes as the rest of the world. We talked about this at our, our, our Christmas Eve service, how you, you've got wise men in Jerusalem, where's the Savior, in this big thriving metropolis. Oh no, that, that Savior is in this little nothing town in a barn. He's a Bethlehem Savior. And, and so often, we, 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 all our, our, our religious sensibilities kind of conform to the, the world's sensibilities. And we just think, bigger is better. Uh, I'm not as gregarious. I'm not as charismatic. I don't have all these big, shiny gifts to, to change the world. And, and, and truthfully, the move of God is way more subversive than that. It's way more counterintuitive than that. We are here in Chattanooga, Tennessee on Macaulay Avenue, talking about Jesus Christ 2,000 years after he lived and died, not because some ad campaign or some TikTok video went viral. We're talking about this because he included the cast-offs, the nobodies. He welcomed the throwaways. He said, let the children come. This, this move that he pioneered in our world started welcoming in Samaritans. It started welcoming Gentiles. It started, the, the first person to announce Jesus is alive was a woman. Now, to us, that may not be impressive, may have no meaning whatsoever. Yet so, back then, pretty big deal. Jesus brought some sense of inclusion to the marginalized, to people who experience racism, division, segregation, who have lepers. Lepers. He brought them in. Children. This is why we're still talking about Jesus today. Not because it was flashy, not because it was impressive. Because it mattered the most to the least. That's who he is. And so when he says, I, I value the least, it's because that's who values him. That's who needs him. And truthfully, if we're all honest with ourselves, no matter how successful we've been, no matter what we've accomplished, no matter what our resume says, no matter how together we think we are, we are still broken and lost without him. We all are. So he's not even showing favoritism over some. He's saying, this is where I need you to get to realize that you all are. He says, you all need to be converted to children. And what he's saying, you all need to realize that you are my children and that you are lost without me. There's a um, great holiday movie. It's, in fact, the greatest Thanksgiving movie ever made. It's called Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. First rated R movie I ever saw. Uh, I saw it. It it came out in 1987. I was like nine, ten years old maybe. And uh, I went and saw a rated R movie. You can, you can talk to my parents. I think the statute of limitations is up. But um, anyway, it's only rated R for one scene, which is my favorite scene. <laughs> anyway, uh, so 
and just people that haven't seen it, they're like, what, what weirdo is saying that? And she cusses a lot and it's funny. Anyway, so there you go. Um, there's a great scene in the movie where, uh, so it's John Candy and, uh, and Steve Martin. And John Candy plays a character named Dale Griffith. And he's just, uh, he's hilarious. But he's just kind of a, um, you know, an unlucky kind of guy. So he's trying to remove his coat in his car. They're traveling. Steve Martin's sleeping. And uh, the car spins around. It's pretty dramatic. Uh, he starts, he tries to you know, play it off. No big deal. And they start going the, the, uh, back onto the interstate. Unbeknownst to Dale Griffith, they're going the wrong way on the interstate. And uh, at some point, across the median is this other car that's going the same direction as they are. And they're yelling out the, the window, you are going the wrong way. And John Candy's like, oh, oh. I mean, they, they don't know what they're talking about. They're, they're, they're crazy. And then they realize when two trucks are coming towards them, they are going the wrong way. Um, there is a wonderful, beautiful, gracious warning sign in the Bible that is a red light indicating you're going the wrong way. It's, it's an amazing check engine light that we all have and that we don't necessarily pay attention to because this check engine light, so much of culture would say it's good. It's a good thing. And the Bible says it's not. And that uh, we find in, in uh, the book of wisdom, Proverbs. In Proverbs sixteen eighteen is this uh, very important statement. And uh, it's a cautionary statement. Pride goes before destruction. Pride is the bridge out ahead sign and a haughty spirit before stumbling. The minute that we experience in our own lives this, that action, the compulsion of comparing and elevating ourselves, uh, commending ourselves, and, and feeling pretty big for our britches, that I'm, I'm, I'm nailing it. I'm, I'm on top of my game. You're going the wrong way. The minute we feel like this is, uh, the, I'm, I'm, I'm making this, this life happen. I'm, I'm. Now that, that's not to say that there's anything wrong with being thankful, grateful, enjoying. In fact, the joy of the Lord is our strength. There is such beauty in that and strength in that, and it's a great place to be, but in that place where you understand why I'm, in, why I'm experiencing this, where the glory belongs, where the credit belongs, that is a completely different sensibility than, I'm pretty good, aren't I? I love T.S. Eliot. I, he's one of my favorite poets and uh, writers, and, and um, he made this statement. This is a quote from T.S. Eliot. We're all absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of ourselves. It's like we want to be like these people on social media and on the news and in all forms of entertainment where they are just, they talk to you as if they are the greatest human in the world and you just need to believe it because they are. And it's like something inside of us is like, man, I wish I could have that kind of confidence. That is not confidence. That is arrogance. I wish I could walk around just completely enthralled with how great I am. No, you don't want that. Because what Jesus lays out here in 13 verses is what God 
views as being great. And that is one who is urgently, desperately dependent on Christ alone. Who has to have Jesus. He is the air that we breathe. He is the only hope that we have. He is the answer to every question. In fact, I would say this. I'll close with this, the answer to this question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The answer is Jesus. The answer is not me. The answer is never going to be me. What Jesus is getting at and leading these disciples to is not, this is how you become great. It is the answer to the question, who is great? He says this, Jesus says this, whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who did that? Jesus did. Jesus is the only one who has actually regressed to childhood. He's the only example we have of that. Who's actually, factually regressed to childhood. He took on the form of a baby. He became, the God of the universe became a baby. So, what is he talking about? Those who will humble themselves. Those will be, who would even be wor- uh, willing to cut off limbs. Jesus was broken and destroyed, decimated, killed. Gave his life so that we could experience salvation. He is the lamb that was led to the slaughter. He, he, wasn't, he, he was not rescued. It's a beautiful story. Of, I don't know how beautiful it was to, to Isaac, but you get this beautiful story of Abraham, his willingness to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. God stops him. And he stops him because he, he's, he's making point. I'm not going to ask you to do that. You don't have to do that. I'll do that. He sacrificed his only son for everybody else. So that lost sheep was allowed to be slaughtered. This whole picture, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is. So where do we find our place? Where, where can we find our home? Where is the greatest place for us to be? The greatest place we can find ourselves is not scratching and clawing our way to the top, trying to be impressive, trying to earn attention or credit or, or accolades or respect. The greatest place that we can find ourselves is desperately dependent on Christ alone. That is the best place we can be. Not self-sufficient, not having it all together, but deeply aware of our desperate need for Christ. Jesus ran to the bottom. He ran to the back of the line in order to lift us all up with him. The greatest place we can find ourselves is trusting in him. We are seated at the right hand of the Father as he is, so are we, because of our faith in his substitutionary love and grace to take our place, to become us, to become like us, so that we could be find our true selves in him. I am in him, he is in me, he took my place, and now I'm alive 
in Christ. That transaction is a transaction of faith and trust and belief. And as much as this world, and I know I'm running uh, counterintuitive to every other message that we usually hear, but as much as the world screams that what faith looks like is strength and confidence and, uh, and, and boldness, yes, it does. Sometimes. But the Bible says that while we are faithless, he's faithful. The Bible says, I believe, but help my unbelief. That means I trust you. I know you're real. I know you love me. But every day I falter and I fall. And living this out, walking this out is really hard. I desperately need Jesus. The greatest place we can be in is desperately needing Jesus. The greatest place, that, uh, the worst place we can be in is living a life that looks like we don't need him. So my encouragement is this. May we, may we meditate every day on our gratitude and thanksgiving for look what the Lord has done. He saved me. He's rescued me. You saved a wretch like me. Gratitude, thanksgiving for what God has already done. Appreciation for what God is doing. And hope for and faith in what God is going to do. But everything's from him. It's through him. It's to him. It's all Jesus. So our reliance and dependency on him, may it be at an all-time high.